Fire and Bones podcast, a conversation between two pastors over the text we are preaching this week. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it, most of all, share this podcast with a pastor you know might benefit from it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. This is another week where I am coming into today wishing I was way farther than I am in my preparation for Sunday, both because I have been counseling at night, meetings during the day, phone calls, email, you name it, and I have some things coming up uh, the next couple of days as well. So I feel like... My time is short, and uh, I, I think I'm just going to have to uh, – I'm looking at Saturday night and uh, trying to cram in as much as I can uh, while still be faithful to some other things. Uh, I think – I don't tell me what you think. I feel like earlier when I first began preaching every week, that kind of thing was uh, like terrifying – and now it's not terrifying in the same way as in, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? But I do realize I'm going to be exhausted on Sunday at 1 p.m. Uh, because I'm just going to kind of burn the midnight oil for several things for a few days here. So I don't I, – I, do you feel that? Like you feel your week is full, but it's not so like, oh my gosh, I'll never do this. You just know you're going to be – you're going to be putting in a lot more hours this week. Yeah, we we're in a very similar situation. I think this week, honestly, uh, I we have at our even just at our church, we have a uh, there, there's a uh, easement proposal by a company to use our our land for something, and mm-hmm. there's a lease that has to be sold. You know, we had a member meeting last night. The motion got tabled so that we could discover some more information before making mm-hmm. a decision and things like this. And mm-hmm. those things are, you know, they're fine, they're great, and they're relatively benign and have almost nothing to do with preaching. And but they take so much time, and. Mm-hmm. And when it first started happening, I didn't even realize how much time this was going to take, or else I would have handed it off a long time ago. And um, in the in the vein of Act Six, and uh, you know, kind of brought in some of the other staff members on it. But yeah. it, it's those kinds of things. Like it could be that it could be family stuff. We have baseball every night. It seems like you know with the kids, mm-hmm. and and so you. And and on top of all that, this all hits on the week that I'm preaching one of the more contentious passages in you know my time here which is you know abomination and desolation in matthew 24 15 and, and following and and so i'm like you're preaching the yeah you're preaching the apocalypse Perfect. on sunday and you're you're struggling on monday with stuff that doesn't you feel like doesn't even matter in the grand scheme yeah. of things you you're literally going to have thrown this together on saturday night and so you You've said it a few times. You're going to look like that guy 
Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. grabbing all these passages, making all these points, and yeah. like, the, what the, is the, he talking about? Yeah. What is going on? If you have to say in your sermon, no, listen to me, guys, this totally makes sense. <laughs> You've lost them. You're, you're, you're way off, bro. What do you do? You ever had those moments when you're preaching, when you look out there and you realized this just sailed 10 feet over everyone's heads and not in a intellectual superior way, but in a, it's this is not landing anywhere. You ever oh, have man. those moments? The, the feeling, and I, it's so hard to describe, but the feeling of being in the pulpit and and realizing that at that moment that you've just lost everybody and there is this sweat that comes over me and it's so hard you 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 know it when you feel it but it's this sweat that comes on you it's like it's not hot in here but you want to ask everybody is it warm in here like you know where you're just you what do feel you so what do you panicked. do do you just do you just power through or do you try to change what you're saying or do you snap and say hey, Hey, y'all look at me. <laughs> what do you what do you do? I yell. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you just scold kidding. the congregation yeah. immediately. Yeah. Shame yeah. on you for losing your attention. No. I, you know, it, it depends. I have I have before I have kind of paused and said, let me, you know, rephrase or let me let me say this or let me, you know, I- explain this part. Or there's been times where I've even said, look, if you ha- didn't listen to any of that and you got lost in all of that, here's why this matters, you know? And just own that, like, that half the room just got lost, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. or three people are tracking with me. And, right. you know, come back at the end of it and just say, here's why I go into all that. Here's why I say all that. Just to yeah. kind of, just to kind of bring them back and say, and just reset and go, you know, if you didn't listen to all that, you know, and just saying that, yeah. I feel like some of the people that are lost are like, okay, this is my spot right here, <laughs> you know, yeah. where I, I can, can retune in. I found an on-ramp back to yeah. the sermon. <laughs> yeah. And so, back, back you know, from kinda, uh, Candy Crush or whatever I've got yeah, going on, I'm, exactly. I, can, I can pay back attention now. Yeah. There's so, been, I'm gi- I, given them that on-ramp, I think is helpful, but yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think sometimes I've had this thought while preaching, like, you know what, this is... Uh, this is this sermon is going to be a base hit today. I'm not knocking it out of the park. I don't know what the spirit's doing out there in people. And you know, I've, we've had discussions so many weeks where you're like, "This is, you know, that was a weak sermon. Uh, I wasn't as prepared." And then someone comes up afterwards and is like, "Thank you. God spoke to me and encouraged me through the Word, and it fits this thing that's going on in my life." And and you you don't know you don't know what the Spirit will do through the preaching of the Word any given week. Um, and so you just there's been times where I think in the pulpit like you know what this is this is an addition to the regular diet of the preaching of God's Word. I'm not trying to start a you know, Zusa Street kind of revival today. I'm trying to faithfully feed the flock, and I think we're doing that. And some of the sheep are asleep. It's okay. You know, there, in fact, there was one, uh, they, they've since moved from our church. They moved out of the city. But there was one woman who I could almost, I, I could count on it. She'd probably fall asleep. I, I usually do like an introduction, and then I pray, and then I keep going into the sermon. I could almost count uh, how how long it would be from prayer to her falling asleep every mm-hmm. every week, 
Mm-hmm. And I know her life, and I know her uh, work, and I know it's hard, and so I, you know, I, I get it, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, what? <clears throat> yeah, the, it's. Um, it, I think those times are probably fewer and further between. The more. I think the more I get to know the congregation, it's themselves, you know, where they're, where they're at. And then also mm-hmm. the, the further I've been into kind of setting the expectations of what we're going to do on Sunday morning. So we, mm-hmm. we're going to do, this is going to be the routine. This is mm-hmm. about how long I'm going to preach. This is the content of what you can expect. And the more that's been the case, the congregation kind of forms around the, the word itself and mm-hmm. grows into what we can expect and how this this morning is going to kind of flow. And mm-hmm. because of that, they're sort of, I guess they're tuned into your voice in, in a similar way of like, I, I just, I sort of relate it to, you know, right now we're in baseball mode. And so Grayson mm-hmm. and Andrew are both playing baseball and, and, um, you say, you say Andrew or Andrea? Andrew, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. And, yeah. I, Andrea's I was imagining in a women's softball Andrea league playing yeah. playing baseball, yeah. and yeah. I don't I don't know if she's athletic or not, so I didn't know. I just checking. Well, the other day she asked me, "You said you said pick your strike. I thought I thought a strike was only when you swung," and I'm like, "Oh, oh goodness." <laughs> uh, you know. So oh, uh, you know, you know. It's totally side note on that. I, I. My wife grew up in a football home. Her dad played football at uh, Tech for a bit, and they're big in football for years. And I've seen my wife stand on the couch during a Dallas Cowboys game in excitement. <laughs> it's been a while, but I've, I've witnessed it. And and you uh, thought you thought this is why I married you. You have no idea. <laughs> I was like, I'm more excited about her than I am the game right now, for sure. Absolutely. Which is true uh, every week anyway, but uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, we're we're in baseball mode and I've you know, you notice or I notice that when my kids are running the bases, you know, this is their first year to ever play baseball and I underestimated hmm. how crazy of a baseball parent I actually become oh, when I'm watching my own okay. kids. You're you're one of like, those guys. I okay. am one I'm one of those guys and I didn't mean to be. I preached against you being one of those guys and now I'm like the super hypocrite who has become one of those guys. And if, I don't yell at you the umps. If you start skipping your own preaching in sermons to go to baseball championships, yeah, I as your friend will tell you. I'll, I'll, right. I make a commitment I will speak up to you. Well, in, and this is another, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know if this is another topic for another day, but um, th- there, there is, a, what I've noticed is that as I, the crowd could be, the crowd of parents could be all like cheering yeah. and I can yell out without calling my son's name, I can yell out, you know, there's a force on second or whatever, yeah. and they will hear my voice and kind of be attuned to it, you know, and mm-hmm. yeah. do whatever I'm, I'm instructing them to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and part of that is just, you know, over the course of their life, they've grown up with this voice mm-hmm. <laughs> yelling at them. Uh, but, you know, no, you know. <laughs> that uh, sounds familiar, Dad, yelling yeah, yeah. for me to run. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
But you know, it, it is funny as a, just another aside. And and it, I, the, my point was, I think that that's how the congreg how it happens with the congregation and the pastor. Eventually, they're not that they not that people don't go to sleep. Obviously, people go to sleep every week. But there there is a there is an attuned uh, ear to the voice of the pastor. The longer he's there, the longer the routine is established. And I, I think mm. that goes into the the some of the importance of like liturgy and and routine and all of those kinds of things in your service of just being able to tune in to the voice of the pastor. But, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah. And then me as a crazy, crazy baseball parent, you know, it's it's pretty funny to watch. And I think there are unique challenges and opportunities to stay at a church for a long time as a pastor. I can't remember where where I read it, but the average stay for a pastor in the states is like three and a half or four years. Does that sound right? Yeah, it's something like if that's that. That's wrong. I want to be corrected, but I think that's the case. That's the last I heard, which was years ago that I heard that. But yeah, yeah. So let's just assume we haven't uh, gotten exponentially better than that. Um, that that's a cha- that's a challenge. You know, you especially if it's your first time preaching full-time in ministry, it takes you years to find your own voice in preaching and not try to, at least for some people, for myself at least, uh, we try to find out how, how do I preach, what's my, what's my honest uh, voice, if you will, where I'm not trying to preach like Piper, I'm not trying to preach like someone else, I'm not um, trying to become some someone or use some rhetorical tool i am just consuming and preparing god's word and preaching it as myself overcome by god's word that takes that takes time and you don't you don't just just because you have that giftedness doesn't mean that it doesn't take time to uh to hone and to sharpen and so being at a church uh for three and a half years is like going to practice and then uh, telling your congregation, you know, thanks for letting me practice on you guys. I'm going to go use that somewhere else. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, it, it, I don't know. you can't explain. It's so hard to explain to somebody. I mean, I was an associate pastor before I was a pastor. And I know that when I became a pastor, I it took me, I've been here almost four years, and it took me every bit of three years to get to the point where I did not feel like Sunday morning was a performance that I was given Mm -hmm. the task of upholding, that I had to maintain a certain level of expectation every week. And if I didn't Mm -hmm. hit that expectation, then I was failing at my job. And the the reality is, as you've already pointed out, the the reality is that you don't even know what the congregation expects. And you go up there and preach what you feel like is a terrible sermon because you know what you can preach or you think you know what you can preach. Mm -hmm. And you step down and somebody in the congregation is like, man, that was the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. And you're Mm -hmm. like, what in the world are you doing? What did you listen to? Yeah, you know? did you were you listening to some other sermon all morning? Yeah, yeah. And I can't, I can't explain. It's hard to describe that feeling that switched for me at about year three, when I all of a sudden just started feeling like this is my family, mm-hmm. and we're in a living room, 
and really in my mind just changing the room and I, I know I've said this before but that was the the goal for me was to help people understand that what we're doing up here and I say it regularly from the pulpit is this is a mm-hmm. living room we're a family you're going to hear kids crying in the background and you're going to hear mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff because that's what happens in a family mm-hmm. you're going to see people get up and go to the bathroom at opportune times and you're going to hear people snoring because we're a family and we're totally mm-hmm. imperfect but that mm-hmm. it took it probably three years for that to switch in my own mind where I actually felt that way coming in that I, I felt like, you know, if we mess up, if we, you know, totally get off on the wrong foot or whatever, or, you know, somebody is off on a cue or whatever, mm-hmm. that none of that really matters, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that, that became a, that was a challenge. But now when it comes to preaching, the benefit from that is that whenever I'm, I walk into the office on Sunday, I know I have my arms, I should anyway, I hope, to have my arms wrapped around the text, but I I might not have everything down on manuscript yet, even on Sunday morning. And I'm still thinking through wording and things like that, and some of that comes out in me just kind of practicing it or rehearsing some of the lines or, or or looking through what I'm saying and tracking the argument and making sure the argument is clean. And so... Then I, mm-hmm. I may start putting some final things on paper, and that used to worry me. It doesn't anymore. It's not. I'm like because well, even if even the power shut off, and I had to get up there and just talk for 45 minutes and preach for 45, minutes, I could still. Your, do I, it. If your iPad died, yeah. right before you get up, you, you yeah. don't preach from your iPad though. You preach from you print notes, right? Exactly, which seems wise. It's, I preach well, from my iPad every week. I've done it both ways, and one time, I, the only reason I switched, my the pastor that I kind of was associate to at the previous church, he mm-hmm. always preached from paper notes, and I used to always tease him about it because I had a little iPad <laughs> mini, and I got up there to preach for him one time, and I hit my iPad mini, and nothing happened. It was just black, mm-hmm. and I was like, mm-hmm. I had this because this is still in the stage when I'm at a previous mm-hmm. church. Not my, I'm not the pastor of this church. I'm an associate, mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, th- like I f- still feel like it's a performance. All this kind of stuff, you know. And I, when that happened, I, I thought I may have had a stroke right there at the pulpit. And I mean, if if years from now the doctors go, oh, you had a stroke, I'm gonna go. I know when that moment was. Yeah. It was when I was standing up at the pulpit that day. And uh, but I, I thought the world was about to be over, and so I hit the button again, and it was just slow to come on, and so it, yeah. it popped on, and I was like, <gasps> did you have, oh, thank Did you have the moment? Maybe I'll just fake pass out right now on the yeah. ground. Oh yeah, I was like, Is that there would something be easier I... for the congregation to deal with today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let, let me just take a sip of water so that I can fake choke in front of everyone oh. and just like he just he just drowned in a bottle of water. Yeah. So let me ask you this: we part of part of our role is to, we, and I think we talked about something like this a few weeks ago, maybe, but to bring it a, a little bit to a narrower point. When do you know I am being unfaithful? to my church and unfaithful to the ministry of preaching um, by minimizing my time to prepare that sermon. How do, you, how do you know when you're doing that in a given week or as a routine that because I, I think 
I don't I don't think it would be helpful for us to glorify in each other. Oh, we're so busy, and then we spend Saturday night, Saturday morning finishing touches, as if that is a, a thing to be replicated. Much less what we are trying to do every week. How would you say you know this is when you're minimizing preaching and the saints are suffering and it's and it's not faithful to your calling yeah that what a i mean there's did you a lot wake of complexity. up did you wake up thinking you were going to answer that question today no yeah well th- there's a lot of complexity to that question because you know when you start to think about it uh I mean, if you, again, I, I come back to, and I know I've used this example a, a million times, but when you when you're reading Acts six, you can't help but read that as a pastor with extreme conviction, because they're like, "Look, my job is to preach and to pray," and I, and so anything that's taking away from that is is too much, you know. And so when you when you talk about the modern pastor. And the amount of different things that he has to know. We've talked about it a million times just on our own, just, you know, privately in phone calls and text about how, uh, how much the pastor is required to know now. Like we're dealing with property easement purchases and right now. And I'm like, I'm not a, I'm not a, a property expert, you know, I don't know anything about property. And so you know, having to do that, uh, know like the law, uh, know be a counselor, be an expert in finance, be I mean, so many different responsibilities that all distract from preaching and teaching the word and prayer, and so that's extremely convicting. On one end, where you're like, well, I guess technically the answer to your question is anything that's taking away from that is too much. So that's one you know I think way to look at it. But for me. Uh, I think that's the benefit, the value of bringing other people into the sermon preparation process is, you know, in in working in collaboration, talking, here's what I'm thinking through in this text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you do that, then, and other people are invited into that process, you for one, my staff for another, uh, really my wife, um, they start to point out, you know, Maybe they ask questions uh, that you mm-hmm. don't know the answer to. Does or, your staff know that they're writing their, your sermon for you? <laughs> they have no idea. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, but but when the, when they're starting to ask questions that I don't know the answer to, that I probably should yeah. know the answer to, mm-hmm. it, you know that invites them also into the process into the into the conversation of being able to give me feedback and say. You're not normally you're not normally this far behind. Or mm-hmm. are you doing okay? Is there something that mm-hmm. I can? I, I've had our, our my staff has asked me just because of that a number of times. Is there something I can take off your plate? Uh, you know, and things like mm-hmm. that to mm-hmm. give me time to write more or to study mm-hmm. more. Yep. And yep. the staff recognizes that that's the chief responsibility that I have. And so I, for me, I think you know. That that is probably the most invaluable thing I can do, or any pastor can do, is just bring other people into the process so that they mm-hmm. can ask you questions to sharpen you. Because otherwise, you you know you have no idea. I don't know. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I think yeah, I think that's super helpful because what you just said was there are some things that you, some anchors you plan in your week that 
aid your sermon, and it's not you alone in your schedule every week making sure that you alone have time and no one else knows. No one else is involved in this formally or informally. I think that's really helpful. I think I know that I've crossed a line when I'm scrambling, uh, when I sit down and I don't have time to meditate on the text. I don't have time to test my own thoughts about a text. Uh, I, I am rushing, and I feel the time crunch. I, I know that I've crossed a line at that point. Sometimes I have a lunch that might go an hour or two long because I'm talking with someone about things that are going on, and that bleeds into some sermon prep time I had blocked off. That's one thing, but waking up late in the week going, I'm way behind, and then you sit down in the mood to you know cram for a final like you were in college and you haven't listened all semester, you, that, you've done it. That's, that's the thing, and I know that I've done that before. Um, and so I, that, that self-awareness and watching yourself is hard. And one of the best ways I find to do that is <clears throat> not to uh, kind of just go, I'm just going to do my best to find time to do this, but block off time. I don't do counseling this hour. I, I don't answer the phone during this hour. Um, I, I don't plan lunches this day. Th- this is time. This is my job. This is my job. This is not something that I do uh, as kind of, you know, it's kind of an added-on job description. This is my job. It's a primary role of the pastors to preach the Word. And so uh, I, I, you have to block that time off and go, that's me doing my job. Uh, and, and and just make sure I remember it. everything else is my job, too. Pastoral ministry is as as equally our um, our, our jobs, in a sense. So blocking that time off helps me a ton, where I know I'm not going to do anything from 8 to 12 today except work on my sermon. And I actually find that when I do that, I have much more fruitful time, I have much more fruitful thought about Scripture and uh, study of Scripture. Um, it, it is It actually happens much faster when you have more time and you go slower than when you're trying to cram and you're just desperate to get some insight because you're unfamiliar with your passage it, it usually creates the opposite uh, fruit so I, I don't know that's that's how I think about it there was a, a book that I read a couple years ago that I would recommend to every single well pastor for one but really just everybody I think needs to probably read it in this distracted age that we're in but pastors especially is a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport and um, I think that book, I mean, it radically changed my approach to work itself. And huh. in it, he recommends, it's not a Christian book at all. And so I, I, as far as I know, Cal Newport is not a Christian. I, I don't know. I might be corrected on that, but I, I, I don't think he is. And um, But the, the book is, is immensely helpful in just the approach to the brain, how it functions and what, how to get actual work done. And so he, he, you know, it's blocking off different things, uh, capitalizing on the time, the time of day when you do your work. And I, I think it's incredibly important for many reasons, but, you know, I think Congress, and this is, this brings up a question that I want to ask because it's always a hard, hard thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, people 
will call pastors and, and will call me and will say the phrase or the ask the question, hey, do you have a second? And when your job is preparing to preach, you technically always have a second. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. You, I, I feel like I always well, the answer is yes. But if you're asking, am I currently doing something? The answer is also yes. I'm just, you know, I'm not disarming a nuclear bomb. Right. Yeah. So, I, yeah. you know, I can technically pause what I'm doing and, and talk to you. But a lot of times those questions end up being, uh, you know, so my bicycle tire popped and I just wonder, do you have a recommendation on a different kind of tire, you know, or something, something like that's totally benign, you know, that's not, uh, that, that's not important. How do you deal with phone calls in the middle of your work that are really going to pull you away and distract? Do you just silence those or do you feel like every call from a member is, you know, the tyranny of the urgent? It's, it's something that's kind of urgent for you to take. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, sometimes it can depend, you know, like if I'm in an ongoing situation and uh, this man or woman calls, I, I know that something's going on I need to answer. But most of the time, I will let it go to voicemail or let them text me and tell me, hey, I called, I was calling about this. Um, or I'll answer and say, hey, what's going on? And if they say, hey, do you have a second, I'll say, well, it depends. What do you want to talk about? And if you want to you know, ask me where's the key for the shed, then I'll say, uh, I don't know, ask our admin, or I left it over here, or something like that, and then we go about our day. If you, if you say, well, I, I want to talk about your view on the millennium and what you preached on Sunday, I'm going to say, let's have coffee next week. <laughs> Yeah, and and talk about it. So I, I think some when people come to me and they ask for counseling, hey, I need to come talk to you. Is there a time I can come talk to you? I will almost always ask them, email me a paragraph about what you want to talk about. I need to know, is this a 20-minute conversation? Is this a two-hour, multiple-visit conversation? Um so that 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 just helps, and I'll and I have no problem. I mean, any if I'm in a meeting, right? Like like if I'm in staff meeting. Typically, the only person I'll answer the phone for is my wife. She knows when staff meeting is. If she calls me, she's intentionally interrupting staff meeting, and I'll answer the phone. Um, but if um, if someone else calls and I'm in staff meeting, uh, I'll go, well, I'm in staff meeting. I'm doing this right now. I'm going to pay attention to this. I'll get back to that later. I think it's the same in preaching preparation. And I think that's part of the, the mind shift where it's like, if you keep making preaching as the thing you can punt to later in the week, then you'll create a habit where your Sunday, your your preaching preparation time is Saturday evening by function of the fact that you will let anything interrupt it. Yes. And am I doing something? Yes, I'm meeting with the Lord in His Word. I'm in a meeting. Yeah. So I know yeah. I I don't have a second, and I and usually I just won't even answer the phone. Yeah. Uh, because I am doing something. Right. And I will get back to that later. You know. And if I get three calls from my elder uh, or anyone in the church, you know, I realize they're trying to get a hold of me. Maybe something's going on. You know. You yeah. you always take that consideration. But generally. I am doing something. I don't even answer the phone or email or anything. 
I always refer to that the the double call or the triple call within thirty seconds is the yeah. getting bat. You got bat phoned. You know the yeah. bat phone now is ringing and there's something going on. You know, and so like you yeah. have to. But but you're you're absolutely right. And I think that the guilt that I feel at the end of the week when I'm like, man, I don't have the time that I really wanted to develop this the way I really wanted to. All of that is a result of understanding the preaching event, the the preaching moment in the service to be uh, auxiliary to what the church does, and and that's that that I think is the sin of the pastor is taking that and putting it into a position that it is not. It is clearly the meal that yeah. your congregation is feasting on. And it's, it's like it's like imagining if you were to use that illustration. Imagine if you were to tell your family, I don't have time to cook food. I don't have time to feed you guys because we have more important things, more urgent things. And 95% of the time, it's it feels urgent to someone on the other end of the phone, but it isn't that urgent that we should skip feeding the church and preparing that meal. Right. Um, I think that's a great way to put it. And for me, for me, the thing that I'm looking for more than anything is I've always described it to the staff as, as getting my arms around the text where mm-hmm. I, probably pretty early on in the week with, I don't know, I mean, maybe a few hours of preparation, I will basically have an idea of the outline pretty much i will have an idea or at least how the author has structured it not my, necessarily my preaching outline but but how the author has structured the the book i'll have an idea of the cultural references that are in there the old testament references things like that that are in there i'll have picked through most of those i'll probably be getting close to what the author's intent of the of the that pericope or that little paragraph or whatever it is, is, and I'll have that kind of sketched out mostly. But, and I I may even get down to having gospel connections and having kind of main points and things like that, that, that I really want, I really see need to be drived home, driven home. But that's different than having my arms around the text. I feel like I, I think that at the point where I have my arms around the text is when I start to, when the, the text actually starts to preach to me and starts to convict me and starts to, I start to then move from conviction of my own, in my own life to then thinking about people in my congregation that this really helps or perhaps maybe corrects or that there's certain people that it connects to really well and i start to think of of just if jesus were to come in and were to lay the text bare in front of the congregation this week this would be his heartbeat to them and what he would be communi- what he would be wanting to communicate to them and mm-hmm. one one you know, thing especially yeah. you know, like a, a 10 point sermon Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, what is the just the if you're just backing up, what is the the main heart of this of this text? And in in sort of a in you know you're preaching through Revelation, sort of a letters to Revelation, letters to the Church of Revelation um, kind of way, where mm-hmm. he he it's like Ephesus. Here's what I want you to know. Um, yeah. You know, Laodicea. Yeah, I, here's I, what I want you to know. 
I feel my passages right now for the next few weeks, I get a little bit of head start on that yeah. every week because right. the structure is uh, this particular vision of Christ from chapter 1. You're doing this well. You're doing this poorly. If you overcome, here's the promise. And so it's like every, I can just flip to it, go right to the middle of it, and go, here's the thing this week. And you have mm-hmm. to, of course, be careful. You can't just plop in there make a quick glance and then mail it uh, in that's that's not study yeah um but that structure gives you a head start once you see that structure in every chapter you know where to look within that structure in the center Mm -hmm. of those texts for this is the thing that's unique to smyrna this is the thing that's unique to laodicea so that that structure work is already done because the structure work is pretty similar a lot of it is already done because they're so similar in the letters. But then, in chapter 4, which will be in about five weeks, it's going to be, just blow that structure up. It's going to be totally different uh, and, and something else. Uh, so, And I, I think Matthew probably has that challenge, too. you got, uh, like we've seen the last few weeks, you've got a, a three-sentence structure in between two long uh, discourses. Yeah, and we're like this totally different material structurally. Finding the the aim of the text and the uh, the bone structure of the text is uh, it's a different challenge uh, week to week. Yes. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, but I've I've felt that too in um, when we when we were in the uh, the parables that Jesus was telling against the Pharisees and that mm-hmm. ended basically with them getting out uh, being. Uh, you know, out of the kingdom of God, that there was that similar kind of pattern. Both each had, you know, kind of a setup to the parable and then a result, and all of it was progressive condemnation of the Pharisees. And so I felt like for three straight weeks, I could sort of jump into the text kind of knowing even I knew pretty much my sermon outline before I knew anything else. I knew it was going to be, here's the problem. Here's what's the result of that, you know? And I knew that was going to kind of be the, the beats I was going to take for those three parables. Cause I wanted to reiterate that over and over that this is the structure of the section. And so that, that was, you know, relatively easy, but then understanding parables is a whole nother, you know, uh, difficulty in just Bible study is really yeah. Yeah. getting the meaning of the parable, you know, which is really hard. So it still requires study, and and you can neglect that. It's very easy to neglect that, I think. So you you're in Matthew twenty four, and starting um, in verse fifteen. Do you have your arms wrapped around this passage on Thursday at ten fifty a.m.? Um, but I think this is something that this is a passage and a subject coming out of DTS that you've been thinking about for years. So sure. in one sense, it's not like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize this was coming up. <laughs> sure, yeah. So what, what are you thinking? What's your text? What's your passage? What, what's it saying? And what's your, your thought about it today? So Matthew 24, 15 to 35. Um, honestly, 24, 1 to 35 could probably all be preached in the same Sunday because yeah. they're very, very intimately connected. But I felt like that was too much text with too sensitive of a topic to really do 
to treat well and to resolve some, you know, outstanding questions in the mind of a lot of people mm-hmm. around this text in just one Sunday. And so I, I put this in two Sundays. So 24, one to 35 is two Sundays mm-hmm. divided between 14 and verse 14 and 15. So last week mm-hmm. was one to 14. This week is 15 to 35. And I, so as far as the context context it's very similar to last week you know the the context is a question that the disciples ask in fact two questions that the disciples ask uh all the way back at the beginning of 24 where they say in verse 3 tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age and so jesus in verse 4 answered them and he's so he's spending his this whole rest of this chapter and really 25 the olivet discourse if you want to call it that answering the question that they just asked but their question is two questions and so the first concerns the destruction of the temple that they're very concerned about that happens in verses one and two and jesus tells them hey every stone on this mount is going to be you know thrown down and that's what they're chiefly concerned about tell us when this is going to happen it's something they expect i think to happen that the temple is going to be no longer necessary when the messiah's kingdom is here and so they they relate his the sign of the the temple being destroyed and the coming at the end of the age they relate those two things together and jesus i think in 24 4 and following separates the two and says they're two distinct events and so the understanding that i have in the text which i realize is different depending on some eschatological views that people have but the but what i see him doing is in 4 to 35 he is talking about the destruction of the temple that is that he has just referenced and answering that question when will these things be these things meaning the destruction of the temple that they just that they're referencing that's what these things refers to and then what will be your sign the sign of your coming at the end of the age and so that he picks up that's the second question they ask the sign of his coming at the end of the age he starts that in verse 36 and so um so this week obviously there's a lot of complexity to all of that but uh and everybody depend no matter what your you know your eschatological view is everybody's got some difficult questions to answer in this text and so i'm no different in that but in verse 15 we start talking about the abomination of desolation now um very technically and and i don't want to get too far into the weeds unless we really want to i mean obviously there's lots of questions here that probably should be answered um there's the the question of like what is the abomination of desolation and things like that and jesus is going to refer to a lot of um you know cosmic signs and a lot of things that seem like the very end of the world but the the closer you look at it the more you connect this back to old testament history the the things that he brings up abomination of desolation that is a that is not one event not a singular event it's multiple events that that all have kind of a type so daniel seems to refer to an event that took place in about 170 ad or 170 bc which was um antiochus epiphanes walking into the holy of holies and sacrificing a pig uh 
and spreading yeah spreading well i guess not technically in the holy of holies but slaughtering a pig on the on the altar and then spreading the blood around um and but that was an event that had multiple fulfillments so for daniel it seems like he's looking at antiochus Epiphanes, but jesus here is referring to an abo- the abomination of desolation like what you see in the prophet daniel that the prophet daniel describes which was antiochus Epiphanes. you're going to see that again that's going to happen again in this temple and we've just seen that the glory of the lord is leaving the temple and the abomination of desolation contrary to popular belief is not the destruction of the temple the abomination of desolation that's not what desolation means desolation is a kind of a, a, a an event that takes away the sacredness of the temple itself and makes pious worshipers not want to go in and worship that's what an abomination of desolation is that's what desolation is but remember jesus has just told them in the previous chapter your house is left to you desolate and what that referred to was the glory of the lord like in ezekiel leaving the temple which he is about to do so he picks up and leaves the temple just like the glory of the lord left the temple back in ezekiel's day before babylon came in to destroy it and so now he's he's referring to an abomination of desolation, which is a second kind of wave of desolation where um, where Titus is going to walk in and likewise make unholy sacrifices on the altar. He's going to hang up images of Zeus everywhere, and it's going to make all pious worshipers see the temple as as desecrated and not worthy of worship anymore that is before the destruction actually comes and i think so everything that he's describing here is about uh the the laying waste that rome is going to do to the temple and if you need proof of that the proof is in luke 21 where luke describes this same event but instead of just referring to it as the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he refers to it as Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. And hmm. so that seems to just spell out very clearly what time frame we're talking about here, that Jesus is still answering that first question, when is the destruction of the temple going to come? And his whole point in this passage is to warn them. But you ask the question about getting my arms around it, and I think at, you know, Thursday, it's 1058 right now on Thursday morning, April 15th, and I'll be preaching this on Sunday. And I think just now I'm beginning to, I don't fully have it, but I'm beginning to wrap my arms around it. And when I, I the reason that I feel that is because not getting trapped in the weeds of the timing of this event and all these kinds of things is a general understanding of what Jesus is trying to do for the disciples here that I also want to do for the congregation. And when I get to, because there's two things that are happening here in this passage as I see it. One is that up to about 28 he is describing all of these events and warning them about don't look for false there's going to be lots of false christ coming to tempt you to stay in jerusalem they're going to tempt you to be to look at them as the savior like they're a reincarnation of me or something like that don't be fooled and we talked about that a little bit last week but then he switches in 29 
all the way to 35 to talking about how the Son of Man is going to come into glory. And I think all of this, 29 and, and following, there's some crazy language here. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. If you go back to the Old Testament, is so that think from of Zechariah? like, well, it's from multiple places. Uh, actually, two, two, two big uh, prophets that are helpful in understanding that language is Isaiah and Ezekiel. So Isaiah 13, 9 to 10, I just want to read this just so you can kind of hear the same language. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. That he's talking about the judgment of Babylon. So so do you think that's just apocalyptic literature? Uh, apocalyptic language for it's going to be bad and everything's going to be overturned? Yeah, it's the sign of the destruction of a kingdom. And I think there's, I mean, we could get, we but could spend all day probably. We're, we're not looking to see like the day that the sun goes dark, like an eclipse right. is right. the time marker, that this is language symbolizing how cataclysmic the overturning will be. Right. Um, so, as as just a point of reference, these four these four passages in two different prophetic books: Isaiah thirteen nine and ten was what I just read, Ezekiel thirty two seven to eight, Ezekiel thirty two fifteen. Ezekiel, or sorry, Isaiah 34, 4 to 5, all of those describe in similar language to what Jesus uses here, they describe the destruction of another power mm-hmm. um, that's, that's prevalent in the day, Babylon and several others. And so the point that Jesus is making here is yet another kingdom is going to fall. There's a, there's a reality, and this is why we spent some a little bit of time last week talking about you know, the angel to the church and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff and heavenly cosmic representation and, mm-hmm. and all of these kinds of things. And I think that's a very real, that's a reality for a lot of people in, in uh, first century Judaism all the way back was understanding that what they are doing here on earth, what we are doing here on earth has representation in the heavenlies. And, and so like angels being ministering spirits is, is connected to that, that there is some representation, um, in, in, you know, the world that kingdoms have, have angelic representation as it were. And Mm -hmm. that's hard for us to wrap our mind around. I get all that, but, um, but I, so when they talk about the cosmic signs, uh, being darkened and not giving Mm -hmm. their light, it really signals an upheaval on earth that mm-hmm. there is an overturn of a kingdom authority. And mm-hmm. so the sun being darkened and things like that has precedence all the way back into the Old Testament with the destruction of other uh, earthly powers. And so Jesus is using those images to describe the destruction of another earthly power, which is which is Judaism. But here's, mm-hmm. where, here's where I feel like the, my arms are starting to get wrapped around the text because what Jesus is trying to do for them is, is demonstrate what it looks like when Daniel 7, 13 to 14 finds its fulfillment, when the Son of Man is coronated, when he actually has his crown and the crowns of all the other kingdoms are stripped away. Here's what this is going to look like. You're going to know it's going to happen, but for the disciples, this is not merely a warning. It is a warning. Get out. Don't be caught dead, you know, in all of this. 
However, it's also a comfort to them. Not only, he says, see, I have told you all these things, but the comfort is that, hey, listen, guys, when all this takes place, I've got a crown on my head. Hmm. So that means anyone found in me has comfort that, yes, you're going to see awful things and some of your friends are going to die. And, and oh my, how awful that day is going to be. However, however, the silver lining in all that is that the Son of Man is going to be crowned and all of the earthly powers are going to be stripped of their crowns. Mm-hmm. And is, which is exactly what you see in Daniel seven thirteen to fourteen, and it's exactly what Jesus reiterates in the in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means the heavenly representation and all of those that have crowns on their heads that are you know messengers or whatever to these kingdoms. And all the earthly kingdoms and powers that had crowns on their heads no longer do. I alone have authority. So now you, my disciples, go wherever you want to. Spread the news of the resurrection to everyone far and wide. Don't listen to anyone else tell you that you can't do it because I have the authority. They don't have the authority anymore. So really underneath this whole text is this beautiful message to the disciples of, listen, it's going to be bad, but what you need to know is that authority has been given to me in all of this. So I think that's where the arms come around the text. So I got lots of questions. (laughs) First one, does your office have sticky notes all over the wall with pieces (laughs) of yarn connecting all of these (laughs) different passages? Like if I walked in, is that what it looks like? Yes. Right now? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and I have like people, uh, like person of suspect number one, suspect number two, you know, and I've got like... Eschatological option one right yes. here, connected all these passages. It is now, like a mystery novel when you walk in. Yeah. I think what you said in the last three sentences there was uh, helpful because it, it summarized where you, where you see all this going. I think what you said about the beginning of chapter 24 was super helpful because we typically um, we, get, we get lost in the weeds of days and times and the sun and the moon and we don't, we don't even know what question they're really answering. And so we tend to think it's, it's giving us a calendar and it's giving us uh, uh, things to watch for like that. And I think going back to verse 3 and saying this is about when these things will be and what the sign of the age will be and answering those two questions was really um, mm. was really helpful um, do you uh, so you're, you said you're preaching from 15 through 35 yes so I mean a big a big challenge is that even that's a big chunk of a text, lot of text. And mm-hmm. I, I could see how you could preach the whole chapter by itself, sure. or together, uh, or you could preach this in six messages. Sure. Uh, you know, f- how, f- whatever those, how many of those sections are. Um, just summarize for me again, like what's the one, what's the what's the one liner, what's the the one aim of of this passage? I think 
it is that the coronation of the Messiah will result in the destruction of all earthly authority, especially that in Jerusalem, or starting with that of Jerusalem. And so underlying all this, so so that would be kind of my one, I think that is the heart of what he's trying to get at with them, is that my coronation and my receiving authority and power, like you see in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, the, the result of that on earth is going to be all of these earthly powers, starting with Jerusalem, being completely overthrown in sometimes very horrific ways. Right. So when you when you talk like that, I'm, I'm looking through this passage with you, and I hear you leaning really heavily on the context from the past three or four chapters in the, in the book of Matthew. What yes. Jesus is doing, tearing down the, re- the religious establishment, tearing down uh, the temple, tearing down their ideas of, of what real righteousness and faithfulness is. And so you, you, you seem to be re- leaning really heavily on those. This is, a, this is a, a one more part of that, those pieces. Um, what is the, what are, what's unique to this passage that makes it so different from, from the others then? How, how do you keep yourself from kind of the preaching the same general message that Jesus has preached, uh, like you, like you mentioned, this general message about the overturning, um, w- without missing what's really particular and, I guess a question like, what's your sermon going to be structured like, uh, and mm-hmm. how much attention are you going to give to interpreting the, the clouds and the sun and the moon and the mm-hmm. uh, the pregnant woman nursing for for di- and the and their infants nursing in those days? How much time are you going to give all those to walk through them each? Yeah, I mean that this is one of the dangers of a sermon like this is that you could go through this text and I could probably list a hundred questions that people have in general to this text, which is always Mm -hmm. a challenge because then you go, all right, let's talk about this question, then this question, then this question. And you feel like you're just going through, this is what this means, and this is what this means, and this is what this means. And I don't really want to get too much into that. At the same time, I don't want to leave the congregation unsatisfied with all of these just outstanding questions. Um, Over, overgeneralized and, to the point where you, you don't actually even preach your text. Right. Um, so what I did last week was I prepared, because I recognized that this is a, boy, this this text is a difficult one for a lot of people. And a lot of people can get, pardon the, the kind of cultural expression, triggered by just the the a different thought on kind of the traditional Mm -hmm. and I say traditional only in the last 150 years has this been taken really uh, dispensationally and and so you know going away from that sort of last hundred plus years of teaching on this passage um, and going back to kind of a historic understanding of, of what this passage really represents you know, can can trigger a lot of people. So I don't want to. I don't want to uh, not acknowledge that. I want to come in and say you have a lot of questions. I realize I'm presenting something that you 
maybe a little bit unfamiliar with that this all refers to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Let me show you in the text how I know that. So for one, I've got to do that, right? But I think have if I can get the mindset of the listener into seeing and reading the passage for what it is, then I think the rest of the questions will start to click into place and they'll start to answer it. So my my anticipation, if I'm answering that question right now on uh, Thursday, is that I'm probably going to start with Daniel 7, 13 to 14. That's going to be the open of the sermon where I want to set them in an Old Testament context. And I want them to think through what it what the coronation of the messiah looks like and right. so i want to help them understand that's what daniel's describing here's what here's what is going to happen and then i want them to come to matthew and see the coronation play out in the real world in some ways it's going to be a test for you to see have my have i have i have i been doing a good job in the last 6 weeks to bring people to this place so right. that it's not a shocker. They're like, oh, yeah. yeah, that that that's where this has all been going. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, want, I want the people to feel like, in some ways anyway, this is the same sermon he's been preaching for 10 Sundays now in a row because I want them to see, particularly with Matthew 24, that... It is not devoid of the context. Right. The Jesus has just been talking to them about this temple that's literally standing in front of them. What are the odds that once he tells them this temple is going to be destroyed and they ask about it, that then he starts talking about a temple that is still in our future that is yet to be built? Right. Of course Which, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the temple that they've just been talking about. It's like so many things where like you can... If you, sounds like you're saying you you can jump in any place in Scripture and you can make Scripture say some weird things. Yes. But when you you put it in its place, when you track it through its its context and its flow of thought, it's kind of like well, it can it can really only mean a couple of things. It can really only be saying this, maybe this, but it certainly can't be saying. Uh, what people have twisted it into saying, whether right. that's whether that's a a passage that's as complicated as Matthew twenty four, or um, John three sixteen, you know, or or yeah. any any passage, uh, right. Philippians four thirteen, uh, as an example. I don't know if you're are you drinking from your Philippians four thirteen coffee mug today? <laughs> uh, I can you, do, do you all have things. One? I do. I do not. <laughs> I do have a oh, world. Uh, wor- I have a world's okayest dad mug. Oh, nice! I like. Nice. My wife got that for me for Father's Day one year. World's okayest dad. Brilliant. It's a. It's a. Wow. <laughs> it's a perfect description. Uh, but yeah, I, I, to your point, uh, it, it can't mean what it's never meant, and so yeah, you have to. You, you cannot divorce the text from its context. And it, it, it's unhelpful. It 
And I, and I think people need to, when they read it in the context, I, I, I've heard people say to me before, well, you know, one day the sun is going to move, you know, way closer to us than it is right now, like we see in, you know, Revelation, it's going to kill a third of the people. I'm sorry, if the sun moves close enough to kill a third of the people on earth, it's, an, it's close enough to kill everybody on the face of the earth. Yeah. And that's not what he's talking about there. Or if the sun just goes completely dark for everyone and fails to give its light, so the sun just burns up, then we're all dead. All right, we we turn into Pluto. Okay, so he he, he can't be talking about that, and so that it's helpful I think to go back into the Old Testament and see that this language that Jesus is using is so familiar to everybody that's hearing him. They're hearing Old Testament prophets when he says that. And they're hearing the warnings of judgment from the Old Testament prophets over Babylon. And and the irony here for all of them is that, hey, those friends of yours that are in that temple right now, they are Babylon. They're not my people. They're Babylon. And they wouldn't hesitate to see God's judgment fall on Babylon. And he's telling them it's going to fall in the same way on the Jews. And hmm. they're gripped. They have to be gripped by that. And just cr- and also crushed in some ways, uh, uh, heartbroken by the fact that we have become Babylon. You know, that's, that's gut-wrenching. And so I think hmm. that's the real heartbeat of the text. But Jesus then reiterating, look, you belong to a new nation. You belong to me. And I've received a crown that will never be taken away, a kingdom Mm. that will never be usurped. And that is the kingdom that you belong to, the kingdom of Mm -hmm. heaven, which he Mm -hmm. has been preaching since the beginning of this book. Mm -hmm. It's it's so simple. Matthew 24, it's just that simple. Yep. Way to go. You cracked the code. (laughs) Well, I had tons of help. And I will tell, I will say to everyone, (laughs) I will say to everyone, immensely helpful is uh, G.K. Beale is really helpful on um, not just the Olivet Discourse, but uh, Revelation and several other things in Thessalonians and places like that. Um, So in particular, if anybody would be preaching this this chapter um you -hmm. know there's going to be lots of questions from people like uh thessalonian the thessalonian passage about meeting him in the air and things like that are also going to come Mm -hmm. up as ancillary to this and um and so i think he's immensely helpful on that sam storms his book kingdom come is unbelievable his treatment uh chapter seven and eight specifically of the Mm -hmm. olivet discourse is immensely helpful anybody needs to read that because it just becomes so plain he makes it so plain and he speaks in clear language i think which is really helpful so i wonder if you don't owe it to your congregation to say at some point on sunday that like um people spend decades going through apocalyptic uh literature and you know my my own story is i grew up in uh under mostly dispensational circles and, and preaching and uh, went to like you went to Dallas Theological, and whether you agree or disagree with that is irregardless. The 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 time and the knowledge of Scripture, you you're not going to get done with this sermon and go, I've got it off. Like there's no way you could do that. 
And so if you think like this is me drawing a line in the sand on all of your future study, you you miss that this is one this is still like the rest of preaching. This is one meal to get you down the road of understanding God's word and and interpreting God's word and being encouraged and reproved and corrected like if, like Paul tells Timothy. And so if you leave today and you have more questions than when you started, that's actually okay. If you're asking different questions that you never even asked before, that's okay. Um, but leave knowing these things are certain in this in this passage. That, I think that can take the load off because I know, like when I get to these passages, e- even preaching through Revelation, I've I've felt the burden early on to be like, I've got to make this all make perfect total sense. And I have to wrap up and explain everything in a little package for them, or I'm not being faithful. And mm. I gotta, I gotta be careful of that. Going, I will, will never be able to do that. If I, if I preached Revelation in a hundred sermons over the course of years, it, it's not as if I am just gonna fix everyone's questions and debates through a sermon of series much less anyway it's it's like we're we're pursuing faithfulness we're we're we're, we're picking up encouragement and um, cuz as I, as I'm listening to you say those things I'm like oh, this is all clicking uh, kingdom yeah. come for same storms was really helpful for me not just to answer all the questions but to give me some new questions and some new answers for my own study mm-hmm. uh, which is which is going forward and so that that kind of freedom allows me to go. I'm, I might I still might not know, but I do know this, mm-hmm. and so I take away what is encouraging. Because I think if you, I, th- uh, I maybe this is not true, but to give it the benefit of the doubt, I I think a, uh, anyone who degree, disagrees on the eschatological details of chapter twenty four, if they really are being faithful to the text and even come away disagreeing. Not to overgeneralize, but you should come away with a similar tone and a similar mm-hmm. hope and some similar truths about who Jesus is and what he's saying to mm-hmm. his disciples. Mm-hmm. And uh, that you, you can take yeah. that away no matter what. Yeah, and from this perspective or from even a dispensational perspective on this text, the end of it is Jesus has a crown on his head. And so we're agreeing on that which is the base of agreement that every true christian has ever come to the topic of eschatology mm-hmm. which is a great level of agreement now we do need to get into the weeds we do need to talk about the finer points and the nuances of what we see in the text and what it really means and elevate the text to the position that it deserves as one that is authoritative and deserving of study. But at the same time, we come back to this base level of agreement that the crown is on on his head. And I think Mm -hmm. from the beginning of the book of Matthew, I have tried to preach it as best I could with 28, 18 to 20 in mind, the Mm -hmm. Great Commission, Mm -hmm. because I think that all of it is building ultimately to those last few sentences. 
that Jesus hmm. gives to his disciples while some of them are in the midst of doubting. The mm-hmm. the and it even says that in the deck. Some of them are in the midst of doubting when he they're seeing his resurrected body in front of him. And so I, I bring I come to mind what comes to mind is Jude bear with those who who doubt you know uh, uh, you know be kind or I can't remember the exact phrasing he uses but uh, right. to those who doubt you know here's mm-hmm. here's the apostles the disciples some of them are doubting as they're seeing his resurrected body mm-hmm. standing right in front of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the the heartbeat of the Great Commission is that Jesus is crowned with authority. Uh-huh. And so, therefore, this reforms your entire outlook on what this life is about. And mm-hmm. so my hope has been from the beginning is to preach like crazy the kingdom of God coming and what it looks like when it has arrived. And mm-hmm. then as we get past Matthew 24 to explain to them, it has arrived in Christ. Now, because it has arrived, everything else is a, pre- is a sermon of be ready. It's crazy that when he transitions from 36 to fo- and following through chapter 25 of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus switches from telling them about the signs and what they need to prepare for and when they need to run to then telling them, this time when I come back, you won't know. You won't know what it's going to look like. But mm-hmm. how will we be able to be prepared if we don't know what those signs are? And how will we know? And 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 all of those things are naturally going to be questions that come to your mind. But his his point is, with all of those parables and with what happens at the, from 36 and following of chapter 24, is just be ready. And be ready mm-hmm. seems mm-hmm. to mean, in connection to the earlier parts of 24, to not be led away by false Christs. Mm-hmm. to continue in worship of the Lord and can continue in light of the Great Commission doing the work that he has appointed you to do, which is to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so be ready for us means not only maintaining a faithful worship of the Lord, but then continuing in the work that he has appointed us to do. Mm-hmm. And so it, all of it is built with, guys, Stop worrying about what's going on in the world. Put your head down and go to work, maintaining faithful worship of the Lord. And that's what this all is gearing towards. That's what he's mm-hmm. communicating to you in this gospel. You know, mm-hmm. so which we I think is really helpful. News, we shouldn't read the newspaper and look for <laughs> the oil in Israel or what's going on with Russia. Is that our, what you're saying? Our eschatology should not be formed by the New York Times. That is correct. <laughs> So well, that's a lot, man. There's so it is. there's so much there. It um, is, and it's, it's and so what is to me uh, a difficulty that I can only aspire to is preaching revelation, and which you are oh, in the middle grief. of doing. Oh my and gosh. You are in the midst of. You're still in the easy parts, though. So I'm. Gonna, I'm gonna. <laughs> you're in the easy parts. You're, you're in the parts. Oh you're in the part. When people say, when people say, Pastor, we want you to preach through Revelation. He preaches one to three, and he's like, There you go. That's Revelation. Yeah. Let's move on to something else. Um, I think when people so, want Revelation preached, the last thing they're thinking about is chapters two and three. That's exactly right, yeah. So uh, you've got the church at Smyrna this week, right? 
So this is correct. This give is the us church. the context, the beats of your of your passage, the kind of a brief summary. Uh, Satan is going to throw you into prison. Keep being faithful. It's just a test. Wow. Pretty much it. Yep. Yeah. I, well, no questions there. Let's yeah, move that, on. That, there we go. So it's been a great <laughs> talk, man. Thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, no. Jesus is moving from church to church, tending the lampstands. He comes to Smyrna. He, I think he he implicitly praises them as other churches explicitly for their tribulation. He mentions their poverty, even though they're actually wealthy, he mentions. So I think he's referring to their physical poverty that they're experiencing, but they are rich spiritually. And um, and then he tells them, uh, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Satan is going to throw some of you into prison, and you'll be there for, uh, in the tribulation for, this tribulation for ten days. But then he promises them that those who conquer will will receive the crown of life. And in this passage, the aspect of Jesus uh, that's mentioned in the first verse uh, from chapter 1 is that this is the one who has died and come to life, who promises you that if you remain faithful unto death, in this passage, that you will receive the crown of life. And I think what's happening in this passage, my opening illustration as of right now, is that idea that like you've you've been um, this this message is uh, letting you know that this is just a test. Um, that that this is this is not it. So if you've been on the radio or if you've been you know watching basketball at night on TV and something you know that band comes across the screen or the alarm goes off but then the message comes on this is just a test and mm-hmm. i think that's kind of what jesus is doing here he's he's actually not even saying that being thrown into prison is the greatest tribulation he's just saying you guys have been enduring this bit this way and good but now you're about to be thrown into prison for 10 days, which means there is a beginning and an end of that trial. And I'm calling you to be faithful unto death. And if you are faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. And he says explicitly Satan is throwing you into prison in order for you to be tested, to test mm. you. So that this is not everyone's going to be slain and, and, and died. That's mentioned in some passages in Revelation. But this is you're going to be tested. And um, so that, that's pretty much the synopsis. And Jesus is calling the church to remain faithful even unto death. Um, so I have I have a couple of questions here. Just uh, So before we get to kind of your arms wrapped around the text sort of moment, I, just to get into the weeds, thought, just a little I thought bit I just, here. I thought I just had that moment. I, was, I thought I just did that. So no, you haven't. You haven't gotten there yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. So uh, you know, I noticed that that you may be tested. Same word for tempted, and mm-hmm. and and so. Do you have a kind of a sense of like why the word translated there is tested rather than tempted? It would seem that the devil throwing you into prison is is uh, to me. I've always thought of like testing being the Lord's doing. He's testing and proving uh, his disciples. But then I've always seen tempted as that's we know James kind of lays that out. 
the Lord doesn't tempt anyone, even though he uses the same word for tempt and test. And so I'm just wondering, uh, why is this translated tested rather than tempted? Um, and that kind of thing. Any Do idea you know? on that? Do you know? <laughs> that is not, it's not a, it's not an, I don't have an answer in my head uh, currently right now. I have some thoughts, <laughs> but I, I don't, I'm curious as to whether you know. I don't. I've been. I'm, uh, I'm on the English level of study thus far this week. Uh, the only word that I uh, noticed was different. Um, one of one of the words in the passage, slander, I think could actually have been referred to as accusing you of blasphemy, uh, specifically, so that these who are um, claiming to be Jews but are actually of the synagogue of Satan are slandering you saying that you have been blasphemous and some authors would even go so far to say um, they're saying you give loyalty to Caesar or, or you, you don't give loyalty to Caesar or something like that and kind of giving them up mm. to the Romans uh, mm. through these accusations they're, they're not just gossiping it's way more consequential than that they're actually accusing them of something that gets them in trouble in a way that separates Christians from under the umbrella of the sect of Judaism at the time mm. so mm. that uh, early in Christianity uh, Christianity kind of got attached to Ju- to Judaism and uh, this could potentially be one of those experiences examples of where they're being pulled out on their own. They're having to stand up on their own beliefs and Jesus as um, crucified as the Messiah raised from the dead and you're going you're to have to answer for that and you might even be in, imprisoned for that specifically. Um, there's a lot of back context and, and things that go to that but I, I think there's definitely warrant to consider that. The word testing itself I haven't considered um what you just said, but I think the in the verse itself, the one of the important things is that Jesus gives the duration. He gives you're going to be thrown into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Is that a literal ten days, or I don't think do you- so. I think just like everything else in Revelation, it's symbolic until the text makes you otherwise, yeah. and forces you otherwise, and um, it ten seems to be a number of perfection or completion through the mm-hmm. Bible, through the book of Revelation. You have several important numbers that are multiplied by ten, times ten, times ten, in order to represent a fullness, a, a wholeness, the farthest extent, right? And so for him to say ten mm-hmm. days is to say, you, I'm calling you to remain faithful unto death. This tribulation is only going to last ten days. It, right. And it'll be com- it'll be completed, but you're going to still have to remain faithful un- unto death. And uh, I just think it's a it's a call to Christians to say you're going to be asked whether or not you're a Christian, and you're going to have to stand on the doctrine of Jesus, the Messiah, crucified for sins, resurrected from the grave. You're gonna you're gonna have to answer for that, and mm-hmm. and it's going to cost you. And you have suffered some things and endured some things. There is more coming. And the faithfulness is not even about those things. It's remaining faithful even unto death. Mm. That's, that's, the, that's the main gist of the passage. So those that say they are Jews who are going to do this but are a synagogue of Satan, is this, just, is this Jews that don't believe in Jesus that are going to persecute Jesus? Like basically Matthew 24 is kind of alluding to exactly what you're 
you're uh, preaching mm-hmm. or preaching here is that this is going to happen. This is going to be indicative of the messianic era is that, you know, you're going to be thrown into prison and they're going to, they're going to, you know, chastise you. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, is that, are these Jews, they're just, they're unbelieving Jews. They don't believe in Jesus and they, they see their, their crusade is to persecute Christians. Is that, is that what this is? Yeah. I think this is an example of where this, the context for the letters and the audience for the letters is twofold. We've got an actual church in Smyrna, which is actually experiencing what Jesus is describing. But we also have the application to the greater church throughout mm-hmm. the age of the church. And so, yes, in in Smyrna, it seems um, that there was an accusation against Christians uh, from those who call themselves Jews, but they are actually, because of their disbelief in Christ, they are not actually a part of God's people, and they're actually a synagogue of Satan. They're in his realm. Mm. Mm. And so they're, they are his people. They're of the seed of the serpent, if you will, and Satan is about to throw you into prison. Um, and you mentioned chiasm earlier, I think, maybe you didn't, um, but we we get to the this is the the second letter when we get to the second to last letter uh to laodicea we or uh excuse me philadelphia we get that same phrase again the sin, those who are in the synagogue of of satan so i i think one of the things that structure in the letters tells us both of these letters are dealing with satanic opposition directly Satan is yeah. going to do this. These are the people of the synagogue of Satan. When they slander you, when they accuse you of a wrong relationship to the government, of not believe, not being a, a true believer in God because of your doctrine in Christ, you keep being faithful to Jesus unto death. And and if it costs you your life, Jesus will give you the crown of life. That's your hope. Yeah, and it seems like uh, that they... Uh, as a result of the those that belong to Satan's synagogue, uh, Satan, it seems like maybe through them, because the devil is mentioned kind of twice. He's obviously two different words, but Satan and the devil. Um, it seems like those that are of the synagogue of Satan, the devil is going to use to throw into prison those that mm-hmm. belong to Christ. Is that, that the read on that? Say that one more time. That, the, that those in the synagogue of Satan are going to be the tool that the devil uses to throw some of them in prison. I guess that seems to be the implication there of 9 yeah, and 10. Yeah, I, mm, I don't know if that's required, but I think that's possible. Mm. I mm. think the emphasis is the fact that Jesus actually steps above them and says, Jesus doesn't say those Jews are going to throw you in prison. He goes above that and says, Satan is going to throw you into prison. Hmm. And that he himself is going to do this, which just floods in so much Satanology, if you will, through Scripture about what God allows Satan to do. And how he, you know, it reminds me of uh, Jesus telling Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. I was thinking the same thing. I have Mm -hmm. prayed for you. Um, Satan coming to request to go down and mess up Job's life, and uh, and the Lord permits that. And and here, uh, this seems to be within God's providence and sovereignty that He is Jesus mm-hmm. is knowingly saying Satan is going to do this, 
and he's not saying, uh, but don't worry, I'm going to come get you guys out. He says, it's going to be a 10-day trial, and you need to remain faithful all 10 days, and even yeah. unto death. And yeah. so it's it's putting us uh, a, a, up, up against not just men's slander, but Satan's tools, and and maybe both of those. Um, you know, these are people of, of Satan's synagogue, and they're going to accuse you of these things. Satan himself is going to put you in prison. You have a lot of, you have multiple satanic fronts uh, mm-hmm. that will tempt you to be unfaithful to Christ. Don't ma- yeah. maintain it. And, and the hope is not, I'll save you from prison. The hope is not, um, you'll get your house back. The hope is that even if you die, you will live. I, I think the crown yeah. of life is not a crown on your head that you get in heaven. It's life itself, right? The one who has died and yet lives is the one who's going to do this. I, and I think that's what Jesus means at the end in verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Yeah. In other words, you will, you'll live forever. It's, it, it's so, it's, it would be very uncomfortable to hear someone say, you're about to endure an incredible tribulation. That would be just, I could imagine the feel of someone saying that and saying it with some authority, like the authority of Jesus. I think, you know, because like, like even when, like you mentioned, when, when he says that to Peter, that the devil has requested to sift you like wheat. I can't, I can't imagine the level of stomach drop that Peter just got when Jesus said that, you know? Mm-hmm. That the, there is a spiritual foe mm-hmm. who is who who nearly killed Job, and who has wreaked havoc on Christ's people, God's people throughout the ages. Yeah. He yeah. is requested by name I, to sift you like wheat. If you can, if you can grasp it, I think one of the ge- no. things that Revelation is trying to do is not say. In a sense, track with me if you if you can. Not say in a sense, get ready for these things. They're coming tomorrow. But whenever you endure any of these things, here's how mm-hmm. you make sense of them. Mm-hmm. And it, I gotta be careful because Jesus is warning, and his warnings are imminent. But um, I can't stand in front of the pulpit on Sunday and say, "You guys are all going to prison this week, or next right. week, or in 15 right. years." You right. know, I can I can talk about James Coates Church in Canada and talk about how the world is changing and America is changing and uh, you know you know the the threat is imminent in, in that kind of sense, but I don't I don't know. So mm-hmm. in, in some ways, it's I, I'm concerned that the warning could fall on deaf ears because we're still pretty safe here uh, right. in our country and particularly in our state in Texas. Um, our, our religious liberties fought for pretty hard here by governing officials in our state, so that that idea seems uh, seems a little bit foreign to us and is and is unimaginable even as crazy as things are. Right. Um, but so what I if think that's what if in the midst of it? Because one thing he notes right away is that poverty is a tribulation, right? Po- mm. Poverty mm-hmm. is a trial. Yeah. And and so that's something that some people can can, you know, reckon with and understand. And then later he's going to get to Laodicea where it turns out wealth is also a trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, you know, I think in 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 this whole passage, 
While it would be discouraging to hear that you're about to be sifted like wheat from Satan himself, to have the Lord of all creation who holds the keys to life and death to say, listen to me, I'm telling you the truth, and what I say, you can take it to the bank, you have no idea what is coming for you if you maintain Mm -hmm. faith. Right. You have no idea. It's indescribable what is on the other side of this. So right. just endure for this this light and momentary affliction, even though it's going to feel like the most affliction you could possibly undergo. Just wait, because if you mm-hmm. just hold on, then on the other side of this, it's so unbelievably good that these these afflictions now will seem light and momentary by comparison, which mm-hmm. which has to be oddly comforting, you know. I'm, and, and I'm wondering if it wouldn't be helpful to bring in, you know, uh, Peter before and after the Holy Spirit, where Peter, oh, yeah. ref, you know, he won't even admit to a little girl at a campfire that he knows right. Jesus. Right. And then, all of a sudden, he's the the brave apostle, right? Yeah. Uh, we cannot keep quiet about what we have seen and heard in Acts yeah. 20. I mean, like, yeah, we what, will a, not what a turnaround. Will, yeah, we will obey God, not men. All of a sudden, yeah. yeah. Um, so where where does this power come from to oh. actually profess Christ? Uh, I think that can be a big encouragement. This is not like it, it can actually help us trust the Lord with what He's asking us to do to show what Peter's example was when he was being sifted like seat, uh, sifted like wheat, and Jesus told him, what, "What's your hope, Peter?" But I've prayed for you. I, yeah. I pray oh, for you. Oh man, you you don't. This is not about you. You can't do this. You, you a little girl will intimidate you, but I prayed. I prayed for you so that when Satan comes to sift you, I mean that that to me is hopeful and it's a gospel burden that Christ takes on Himself, rather than the whole burden being well. I hope you don't mess up, and, and I hope you don't. Uh, do this, but actually, the Lord is giving you help and strength in all of this, and giving you the the uh, the promise of life, and uh, alongside that. So I, I'm looking forward to it. I uh, I think it's going to be it's challenging to me um, already. You know, I I'm like I've I didn't once I denied knowing Christ, but I've kept my mouth shut to my barber, right? Get my hair cut. Yeah, yeah. And and I wonder if that isn't a functional. Uh, similar disobedience and denial. Even though I'm not denying Christ, I'm I'm keeping quiet about yeah. Him. Is is that not the same? Yeah. Um, man. Good my, grief. When you're as you're saying this, uh, I mean, even tears are in my forming in my eyes as I'm thinking about all these things. But one of the songs that it brings to mind that my wife and I just we've been singing like nonstop. Uh, for mm-hmm. some reason over the last even just couple months but mm-hmm. is afflicted saint to Christ draw near uh, and uh, I want to just goodness. let me just because I know that there's probably there may be people listening never heard that song before mm-hmm. I just want to re- if I can just read these verses and the, the mm-hmm. refrain I think it would just mm-hmm. benefit um, so verse one afflicted saint to Christ draw near your savior's gracious promise here his faithful word you can believe that as your days your strength shall be your faith is weak your foes are strong, and if the conflict should be long, the Lord will make the tempter flee 
that as your days your strength shall be. So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days your strength shall be. Should persecution, rage, and flame still trust in your Redeemer's name. In fiery trials you shall see that as your days your strength shall be. When called to bear your weighty cross, or sore affliction, pain, or loss, or deep distress, or poverty, still as your days your strength shall be. What an incredible song that is. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I feel like we we need to sing that more and more every day. And, you know, Another side note, like this, this was my fear in this podcast. People are going to know Michael has been writing Nathan's sermons for years. <laughs> that's he didn't not make this true. Stuff. Anything that's no. good, these illustrations, this song. Where did Nathan get that song? Oh, it's from Michael. No, no, that is not true <laughs> at all. Uh, no, th- th- this is to me, and this is, uh, I was thinking about this on the way over here, is that the one of the reasons, the impetus behind obviously recording this podcast and things like that is conversations that we've been having for, I mean, going back, oh gosh, I was trying to do the math the other day, maybe five years we've been having conversations like Mm -hmm. this about what we're preaching, what we're studying and things like that. And just kind of sharpening one another. And I'd like to think that, you know, that my input has had some sort of effect on what you preach, but it's certainly your input. Um, one of the things that I, I see most, I think, in in you, and one of the things that you're, I think, probably the best I know at, is just being able to sit back and take in a paragraph of Scripture or a chapter of Scripture or whatever, and very quickly you seem to be able to sort through all of the weeds and get to the center of the text, probably better than anyone that I know. And so I think over the years, that has had a tremendous effect on me and on my preparation because a lot of times I'll sit down and I get very lost in the weeds, very lost in the weeds, and we'll chase Mm -hmm. a billion rabbits. Mm -hmm. But I'll think to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute, how would Nathan read this text? And having known you for as long as I mean, we've known each other for since college, (laughs) but having known you for almost probably working on 20 years, can you believe that? Um, That for knowing you as long as I've known you, uh, it's been helpful to see how you read the text and how you think of the text. And it helps to um, keep, keep me grounded in the actual passage and the heartbeat of the passage rather than just to get lost in all of these details which are important and they do need to be mm-hmm. discovered but but they're they're not the the heartbeat of it they support yeah, I, the heartbeat I'll of the I'll just say I'm thankful for that encouragement and praise God for that I I find greater joy in preaching the more narrow a point I see in the text mm-hmm. I feel like I can preach it better when I get to one one thing, so I've kind of learned to just look for one thing, um, maybe because of my own weakness and an ability to handle so much. But that's encouraging. My my last question is, if I've if I've taught you anything, have you learned how to cry while preaching? <laughs> so so yeah, I I. I 
This is There's, this is totally. We got to explain that. We got to unpack this inside it. joke a little bit. One minute. I, let me, one let minute. me start. Yes. So I used to work for your dad, and I was a, that was my first ministry job was as college minister in your dad's church. Yeah. And one thing that your dad used to do every single time he would preach, and I loved it, and it was just one of those moments that just brings back so many memories. Is when he would he had these big like windshield glasses. That he used to wear, and I hope he still wears those. And no, he's he got would, cool glasses now. Oh, okay, he he would he would be preaching, and he would get to a moment that just really you could tell gripped him, and he would talk about you know social how the society is collapsing or something you know something that was you know profoundly sad, and he would grab the pulpit with his right hand, and he would grab the the stem of his glasses with his left hand, and he would just take off his glasses and look <laughs> at the congregation with tears in his eyes, and he would say every time, "How sad, how sad," <laughs> every single time, and. I could almost mouth the words he was going to say when he would do that. And it just, it brings so much joy to my heart to think about that. And so last week I'm listening to your sermon or I was actually listening to it this week. It was last week's sermon and I'm listening to it and you start weeping in the middle of your sermon. You start crying in the middle of your sermon and you're talking. You didn't say how sad, but your voice sounded just like brother Jeff. And I, I, it was like bringing back this flood of memories of you, of, of him in the pulpit. And it was so awesome. And it was hilarious at the same time. And it was like, it was just great. So yes. The older I got as a young man, listening to my dad preach, uh, the more I began to think like a man and, dissect what he was saying and dig into the text and think for myself and sometimes disagree but the more and more I appreciated his affection and how I realized he was being impacted by this and his brokenness over scripture and how touched he was by what he was preaching um, that's as it were in my own bones and mm. it's it's been ingrained in those those memories are yeah, like you said they're weekly I mean I could mm. almost tell you when it was coming in the sermon um, mm-hmm. but man what a heritage to me what a, a witness to me of um, feeling the Lord and uh, being overcome by his uh, grace and overcome by his love and faithfulness uh, I, I just the, the testimony to me is this these were not words cunningly spoken this was not always a, a speech thrown together um, this meant something to him mm-hmm. and uh, and still does and it's a great it's a great joy Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't cry as much as my dad, but when I did on Sunday, I thought, I know I sound like him right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and Colette yeah. said the same thing. When I told her that you said that, she laughed out loud because she was there, too, to hear him him preach. Yes. It's, it's, uh, it is it is uh, really, I mean, truly, like he had a deep impact on me. Um, he was 
uh, and I say this, he, he's still alive. I'm not preaching a eulogy here or anything like that, but just <laughs> his his ministry in the pulpit. He, I mean, he was my college pastor before he was my boss. Yeah. And and even after he was my boss, he was still my college pastor for a he while. He married you, right? We saw, yeah, he, he officiated our our wedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he officiated our wedding, and uh, and and did and you know was great and and all those kinds of things. But he just he had such a deep and profound impact on my life that I I could not have even enumerated that in college, and didn't have an appreciation right. for you know what he would do week in and week out in preaching the word to me and like you said i mean i think you know brother jeff and i probably don't agree on every jot and tittle of scripture and that's that's perfectly fine his mm-hmm. his preparation and his preaching and his um just everything that he did even just the the way he went about pastoring and things like that as i got closer was just a, a, a left a an, an indelible mark on on me for sure and i think that's yeah. true of probably pa- other pastors that i've sat under as well they've all had that kind of mark and it's something that yeah. as i think about my own ministry that's all i can hope for some of yeah. these kids that are in here or maybe even adults mm-hmm. is that they're 60 and go mm-hmm. i remember the pastor that i had when i was you know 8 and uh, he just prepared every week and he just faithfully mm-hmm. tried to deliver the word of God the best he could and yep. um, you know that's so all I think all maybe, we can hope for maybe we'll just close I'll say dad I love you we're appreciative of you if you're listening today and Michael let's go cry in our pulpits together that's right <laughs> amen amen have a good week right. man I'll see you next week for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast. Thank you.